Okay, we're going. Perfect. I'm going to put this right in the middle here. Perfect. All right, thanks everybody for your patience here. So today we are going to talk, so the first section, as you might have seen in our outline, is the Bible, the Word of God. That's kind of the first like broad section that we're talking about in our class. And today in particular, we're going to talk about hopefully three things. Hopefully being, if I can keep myself organized and stay on track here, is the canon of Scripture, which maybe we know what that is, maybe we don't. That's okay, we're definitely about to the inspiration of scripture, and then the authority of scripture. So canon, inspiration, authority. Um, question, I know canon, the canon of scripture, that's probably a new term to some people. Does anybody know what the canon of scripture is? Is that all the books together? That's right, yeah. All of the books that are in the Bible, that's the canon. So canon, the word itself just means like rule or standard, and so when we have 66 books in our Bibles, that's because that's what our canon is. But a question that we often ask is why do we use these particular books, right? And mm -hmm. so that's, although it's not the most important topic of theology, we talked about last class how the most important topic of theology is going to be God himself, right? Ultimately, that's what the whole Bible points to. Ultimately, that's what our whole salvation experience is about, is about him, about God. But... The canon, knowing what books are in the Bible, is foundational to understanding different things in theology. And so there's pros and cons. We talked about that to where you start with theology. This is where we're starting here. So here we go. So what, what is the canon for? So I kind of have this broken up in the blue categories here on the notes. The definition of the Old Testament canon according to the Old Testament. So what does the Old Testament say about itself, about its own canon? First point, we live on the canon. Now, we don't have to use the word canon in our normal lives, but since we're doing a class about it right now, I'm using the word canon. We live on the canon. We live on scripture, right? Deuteronomy 8.3, you guys, I think, will be familiar with this passage. Jesus quotes it in the book of Matthew. It reads, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And there's a similar verse that I attached there. I'm not going to read all these Bible verses. These notes look really long. Uh, it's probably like 10 pages of stuff. I'm not going to go through every single verse on here. This is for your reference. If you have questions about, huh, was there a Bible verse about the canon or about inspiration? That way you can look to that in your own time, kind of down the road. Um, but I've listed them here for our future reference here. So anyway, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so that's what the canon is for, is for living. Living on these words. Now, a close, like, maybe by association, something really related to the idea of the canon is this, the inspiration of Scripture. Some, some of you have probably heard that phrase before, probably not everybody. The inspiration of Scripture. I've also highlighted in bright blue, if there's like a definition that we haven't talked about to remind me to define it, because I want to make sure... Even if people haven't studied this stuff before, this is accessible to everybody. But what does the inspiration of Scripture mean? It means that the Scriptures are God's words. That's the most simple way to say that. God has inspired them. You might have heard people say that before. The Scriptures are inspired by God. That's what they mean, is that God has spoken them. And so a definition of the inspiration of Scripture that I'm giving us this morning, that 
we'll come back to later on. Because um, you kind of you can't, can't talk about inspiration before the canon. You can't talk about the canon before inspiration. So what do you do? You pick one and then you figure it out. So that's kind of what I did. But here's the definition of the inspiration of scripture. And we'll double click on this in the second half of this morning. The canonical scriptures in the original manuscripts are God's words. So the canonical scriptures, that's the rule, right, canon, in the original manuscripts are God's words. And that's we'll, the original translation. That, yeah, good question. So it, in the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Yeah. So those are God's words. And there are some more that we're going to talk about Let's hold our question about inspiration specifically for a moment, only because we're going to talk more about inspiration. I think it'll all make sense more there. For now, I'm going to talk about the particular Bible books that are in there. Is that, is that cool? That's cool. No, I don't Perfect. need to bring it up. No, but that's, no, that's a great question, though, and we need to talk about it. So I'm glad you brought it up. And that's kind of the challenge here is like, what are you talking about first? Inspiration or the canon? You know, you just kind of... Yeah, it's like chicken or the egg. Exactly. That's a great way to say it. <laughs> that's a great way to say it. Okay, here we go. So... God has spoken these words. Which words are the words that God has spoken? That's kind of the question we're asking when we talk about the canon. So the first thing we want to make sure we say is from Deuteronomy 4.2. What God says is fixed. It doesn't go away. If God says something as scripture, it stays as scripture. Deuteronomy 4.2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So it's fixed. What God says is final, right? But then what we see, and this is kind of the next like main section of, of the notes here. This is the development of the Old Testament canon according to the Old Testament. The, how does the Old Testament develop? Because not all the books were written at the same time, were they? The first five were written first. And then after that, more history was written, and so more scripture had to be written, right? So as God's people move forward in history, he gives them more words to live upon. Joshua 24, 26. Notably, this is, so the first five books are written by Moses. Deuteronomy is the last one, and I just quoted that one. But the very next book is Joshua. And Joshua writes this at the end of his book, Joshua 24, 26. Joshua wrote these words, that is the words of the book of Joshua, in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the ter terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. But the, the reason I quote this passage is because he put these books in with the law because they were scripture too, because more history had been written by the Lord. So there's a development there. It gets added and added. There's more examples of scripture being added to the canon throughout Israel's history. A big long list here. Um, Isaiah 30, verse 8 is one of them. I'm not going to read all these, but God commands Isaiah. And now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. So God's telling Isaiah, hey, write this down. This is scripture, right? Okay, so, so far, how are we feeling? Does that kind of make sense so far? One quick question. Just yeah, go for it, Gary. me, I don't know. But um, is the Jewish people use the whole Old Testament mm. or do they read just, do they have a canon that's, some different books. That's a great in my question. mind, I don't know. I'm sort of new to studying. Yeah, totally. Or, you know. No, great question. The, the short answer is the Jewish people used what we use as their Old Testament. We use the Hebrew Bible as our Old Testament. Okay. So same books, yes. Same. We're going to learn, though, that there are some Christians that have 
extra books uh, that they put in their oh, like Bible. Mormons. What was that? Like Mormons. Uh, so that's even a radically, even more so. That, that's a great point, though. I didn't even think about Mormons. We definitely don't include the Book of Mormon in our Bible, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Wow. Yeah, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. that. Yeah, great point. Okay, you're, you're making me think of all these things I need to... Okay, um, but, so there are going to be Christians that will add more into their Old Testament, actually. Not in their New Testament, but in their Old Testament. But the Jewish people never included those books, and therefore neither do we. Does that kind of make sense? We don't either, okay. Correct, yes, that's, yes. That's what I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're going to see some more of why different people think different ones are important, stuff like that. So, okay. Are there any more questions so far? I know this is like, in some ways, maybe new stuff. So it would make sense to me if there are questions. No, so far, well, so is the canon like a set of standards for which books get included and which mm. don't get included in the Bible? That's a really good question. It was agreed upon. It, so it, it, it wasn't so much... And we're gonna we're gonna see this, and I'm gonna kind of highlight what different books in particular were slower to okay. be recognized. Yeah. Um, for now, so what kind of in my mind, maybe I could have said this before. So thanks for asking. I'm kind of talking about what does scripture explicitly say about scripture's own canon, and then the, some specific books. Why were some specific books slower to be recognized? Right, because the prophets were sometimes slow to be recognized. So Even if they were rejected people. in yeah. time, yeah. how long did it take for their yeah. writing to be added to yeah. scripture? That's a really good point, and that is some, some of the stuff we're, we're okay. going to dig into. Yeah, great question. Really great questions. <clears throat> any, any more before we continue? You might address this later, but for books that aren't recognized as canon, mm. can they be trusted? Can they be trusted? That's a great question, Troy. This is, this is what... A lot of people in church history had said before, in particular, before and right after the Reformation, before the Westminster Confession of Faith, which had a more pessimistic view of these non-canonical books. But people up until the Westminster Confession of Faith, people who did not believe that these extra books were inspired, there's our word there, inspired, spoken by God, they still thought they were beneficial and edifying. So they were like, look, these are good. But we don't build doctrine off of them, was the distinction that they made yeah. back then. They're not when inspired by When did the God. Westminster Confession? That's a, that's, a, that's a good question. I just brought it up and I... I it, so uh, it's, is it like after the Reformation? Yes, it, it's, okay. it's well after the Reformation. My guess would be 150 or 200 years after the Reformation. Maybe maybe only 100. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's, it's post-Reformation, that's for sure. Does anybody know when the Westminster Confession of Faith was? No. No, and I don't okay, know. Google. Okay, we got Google. Okay, these are great questions. This is kind of we're building up to the big roller coaster climax. You know, this, this is good. This is good stuff. Thank you guys for asking all this. This is really good questions. So, one more thing to talk about as far as Old Testament development of canon. In the Old Testament, there are other affirmations of other Old Testament books being in the canon. 1647. 1647. Oh, so okay. it was probably around, what, 15, like 20 or so? When did Martin Luther do his 95 Theses? Anyway, I think that... it was like close to, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so that that would have been like 100 years would be my guess after, but don't don't quote me perfectly on that because I don't, I don't know my dates. Of you history. could look up my, Martin Luther. 
We could. I think we'll be, I think we'll be okay. But anyway, Westminster Confession of Faith would be post-Reformation. Post-Reformation. Sure. So they're like recollecting. Definitely. That. that we are certain of because it, okay. it crystallized the Protestant faith in a lot of ways as we now experience it in the modern time. A lot of what we do comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. Um, okay, but that's another, and we're, yeah, that, that's more, more to come. Okay, perfect. So, main point I want to make here, for example, 2 Chronicles affirms 1 Kings, and 2 Chronicles also mentions that Isaiah is a prophet who wrote Scripture, right? So, there are Old Testament affirmations of the Old Testament even just in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament itself is bearing witness about its own canonical status. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to say? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. So, Troy, this points to your question. The distinction between Old Testament canon and other writings. Here was the view in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes, and I will read this one. I, I love this passage even just for sermon prep. Oh, it's just so encouraging. Okay, anyway. Chapter 12, Ecclesiastes. The words of the wise are like goads, and he's talking about scripture here. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. That's what he's talking about scripture. They are given by one shepherd, that's God. My son, that's Solomon, the author of this book. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Wait, and that's so, Ecclesiastes? Yes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's right at the end, verses 11 and 13. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 11 and 13. So what that's saying is people are going to write a lot more stuff. There's going to be more stuff that comes out, right? But hold on to these collected sayings in particular. They will keep you, quote, firmly fixed, and they are given by God. And even there's a warning, beware of, the, of any other writings. That doesn't mean we're not allowed to read them, right? But that, that does mean no matter what we're reading, we want to read scripture because it's from God, and we want to read everything else because it's from somewhere else, right? Now, and, and so further, obedience to God, where does it come from? Well, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, fear God, keep his commands. This is a whole duty of man. Where do we understand where God's commands are from? From the collected sayings, which are the nails firmly fixed. Our obedience comes from scripture and only scripture. And anything that's beneficial, written by anybody else, will only be beneficial. Right? It won't be required. It won't be like nails firmly fixed that keep us um, anchored on God and keep us obedient to God. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, cool. Guys, we're cruising right now. Now let's move into the New Testament canon. How does the New Testament canon understand itself? Well, what we get from Scripture is that the New Testament canon actually serves the same purpose as the Old Testament canon. That's what the New Testament itself says. So, this is the doctrine of inspiration that we talked about before. God spoke, God speaks rather, not past tense, but present tense. God speaks these words. Of the Old Testament, yes, and the New Testament, God speaks these words. Here's a famous one that you all have heard before. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, excuse me, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I quote this verse, as wonderful as it is, I'm only going to hone in on one thing. 
All scripture is breathed out by God. Did you catch that? That's inspiration right there. God has inspired it. He's breathing it. He's saying it. And that's all scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Very similar to Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Really similar here. It was breathed out by God's mouth in the Old Testament. It is breathed out by God's mouth in the New Testament. Also, and we're going to talk about both of these verses really a, a couple times as we make different points about how the New Testament understands itself. But 1 Corinthians 14, 37 says this. Paul writes in his letter, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge this, that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So this isn't just, this is me, I'm Paul, and I have an idea, so I'm going to write this, and it's general wisdom. No, no, no. What, what Paul is writing is itself a command from the Lord. This is inspired by God. This is what God is saying. Is that so far? How are we feeling? Pretty good? Okay, cool. Perfect. And then similar to how in the Old Testament there were affirmations of Old Testament passages of other Old Testament books. We have the same in the New Testament. There are New Testament affirmations of other New Testament canonical books. One of these is in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. If anyone has ever uh, had trouble interpreting scripture before, that's me, I'm sure that's all of you, this verse is a great encouragement. Verse 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. So he's, he's talking about Paul's writings. This is Peter writing about Paul's writings. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Woo! All right. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. That's relatable, right? Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Here's the point for our purposes, though as they do the other scriptures. Okay, so he's referring to Paul implicitly as scripture, right? Paul's letters implicitly Wait, as Wait, what scripture. part is that? This is 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. So what we have here is Peter is referring to Paul's letters as scripture. And specifically it's Paul's letters is it his grocery lists? Like, people sometimes ask, like, if I had, like, a, just a random writing from Paul, I, we'd put it in the Bible, right? The answer to that is no, actually. Only in his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So Paul's grocery lists, they didn't have the same kind of grocery stores, but bear with me. Market right? list. Yeah, there we go. Market list. Thank you. Perfect. It's not just, is it from Paul? Is it from an apostle? That's not the standard. No, is it scripture when they're purposefully writing scripture? You know what I'm saying there? So, Paul's letters are affirmed as scripture. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 says this. I'll just read uh, verse 18. It, Paul writes, for what the scripture says, so he's identifying what the scripture is saying, right? For the scripture says, don't muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. That's a quote from Deuteronomy. That's the Old Testament. No surprises there. That is Old Testament scripture. We all know that. And, and he says, and the laborer deserves his wages. Where is that phrase in the Old Testament? Nowhere. It's in Luke. So here, that's a New Testament book, right? So Paul is affirming that Luke is scripture. So we see, point being kind of 500 foot view, the New Testament affirms itself. The New Testament affirms the other books in the New Testament as scripture itself, pretty explicitly. 
So, okay, why then? Why a New Testament canon if it serves a similar purpose as the Old Testament? Why? Well, frankly, and we talked about this last week, but it's worth reiterating here because it really is the reason. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Matthew 5, 17. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's shorthand for Old Testament. Don't think I've come to abolish the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So that's why we need a New Testament canon, because we need to know how the Old Testament is fulfilled. Not to mention the whole Bible is all about Jesus. Luke 24, 45 tells us that, how he... Um, opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and then he shares the gospel about Jesus, that Jesus would suffer on the third day rise, that repentance of sins would be proclaimed in his name among the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. That's not explicitly what the Old Testament said, but that's how he summarizes the Old Testament. The whole Bible, the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. And then we have also the fact that with a new covenant, right, where we live in the new covenant age, right, with a new covenant, new demands for obedience now come about, and there are more clarified hopes from the Old Testament. So, for example, he will dwell with us. Well, what does that mean? Well, what that actually means, we just learned about this the other week, uh, last week, Jesus became man, right? Emmanuel, God with us. So that's the great hope of the Old Testament. But the Old Testament didn't know that it would did not clarify all the specifics about that. It didn't clarify Jesus' return and how we're all going to live in New Jerusalem eternally like that. You know what I mean? So there are some clarified hopes, but then there or are... Or they misinterpreted those hopes. Sometimes they were. That's a good question. They would, sometimes the Jews would misinterpret. Like, for example, at the beginning of Acts, the disciples are like, are you going to restore the kingdom now to Israel? And Jesus is like, no, you got to go evangelize and make disciples of all the nations. You know, so there was some misinterpretation, that's for sure. But there was also, I don't want to say lack of clarity, but the hopes that the Old Testament promised are made more specific in the New Testament, if that makes sense. Like, we didn't know that we'd be living in the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens that the Father is going to dwell in, and that we're all going to be in worshiping God and all tribes, tongues, nations, that sort of thing. Yeah. There are hints of all the nations in the Old Testament, that's for sure. But the way in which it would work out specifically wasn't as clarified as it was in the New Testament. It's a really good question. Does that, did I explain that okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So clarified hopes and also new demands for obedience, right? How many of us take Sabbath day all day Saturday? I don't. Okay, so we're not required to obey in quite the same way either. And we're going to talk more about that. That's its own theological statement and a we're going to talk about that in our think you should. there are people who think we should that is correct and we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks and i'll i'll leave it at that because i know we have a lot to get through but yes there are people who think that the demands of the old testament are still exactly required in exactly the same way as they are in this covenant age i i don't believe that and my guess is neither do you because you all said that you didn't take a sabbath yesterday including me i, I didn't either okay <laughs> Okay, so new new demands, clarified hopes. Um, what were we talking about? Okay, yeah, the purpose of the New Testament canon. So far, how how we doing? I know we're we're covering a lot right now. Okay, cool, right on. Okay, last kind of point about what the canon says about itself, and then we'll kind of go into some more specific books. Next point is the canon is now closed. The canon is now closed. 
What does that mean? What that means is we're not going to add any more books to the Bible ever. We're not going to add any more books to the Bible ever. Now, why is that? So I'm going to show you a couple verses that point to this reality. Revelations 22, excuse me, Revelation 22, 18, 19. I warn everyone, this is how John closes the book of Revelation. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. So he finishes Revelation by saying, don't add or take away. Now we've heard this before, right? Deuteronomy 4.2, which talked about um, really the same thing. Don't add or take away to it. But then Joshua added to it in a way, in a sense, right? Now the reason for that is because as God's people moved through history, God was adding more scripture. Our question now is why is that different? Right? Why is that different? Here's why. Jude, verse 3. There's only one chapter in Jude, so we cite it with his verses. Jude, verse 3. He writes, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for, and here it is, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We here in the new covenant age experience the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. There's no more updates. There's, this is it. This is what it is. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude verse 3. There's a similar phrase in Hebrews that happens four times. Uh, once for all, which the whole message of Hebrews is how there's a new covenant which has come, which is better than the old covenant. That covenant, because of what Jesus did, is once for all. So Hebrews talks a lot about that as well. So that's why we have a closed canon. Now that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to talk about prophecy. What is prophecy? Does the gift of prophecy continue? That's a question for a couple weeks from now. But for now, so I'm not saying one way or the other at this moment <laughs> um, that prophecy is over. But what we do, I think, need to say because of the faith being once for all delivered to the saints is that we won't have any canon scripture. Excuse me. We won't have any canon prophecies is what I meant to say just now. How's that, how's that feel? Good, feel good? Except I have to say that John didn't at the time that he wrote Revelation, mm -hmm. didn't know all the books of the New Testament, right? That's probably true, that John probably did not know all of them. Um, as we're going to talk about, they didn't have, like, email or Facebook, right? So they yeah. had to, like, walk these letters to each other, and that took a long time, as we're going to find. Um, but if we remember that the inspiration of Scripture means that God said it, even if John was personally ignorant of the other books of the Bible, God knew why God was saying what he was saying through John. So John was kind of a, a conduit, okay. a tool, if that makes sense. Okay. But it's still God who's saying it. And God doesn't need email, doesn't need Facebook to know what books of the Bible, you know what I mean? So that's a great question though, uh, Gary, because sometimes, uh, yeah, look, we, can, we, we, we can talk about this here. Sometimes... <laughs> People will say, well, there's no way that Peter meant this because of his personality, you know? And that's like a relevant question to consider, but we also need to consider that it's, also, it's just God who's saying this at the same time, you know? Yes, he used Peter. An important question to think about is, 
to what degree did God use Peter's personality and experiences? You know, we can tell that Luke, for example, wrote as a physician. A lot of his terms that he uses are medical terms. So God is using him as he is, right? And yet God is using him exactly the way God intends to use him. So it's a little more, we don't want to just say, for example, and, but your question is a great question because we get to talk about this stuff. But one thing we wouldn't want to say is, since John wasn't aware, then... That can't mean that because God was certainly where God had a purpose beyond what John knew or didn't know. Well, I, and I, I don't want to raise, but no, go ahead, go I, ahead. I need to some things, but um, the Council of Nicaea—that's what it's called. Right? Sure, yeah. Is that that's where the books of the New Testament were picked? So actually, no. And we're going to find this out by the time the count. I think Council of Nicaea was 381. Um, uh, I might be—it's somewhere 300. I think 381. Anyway. By that point, the New Testament was being widely used, widely circulated. The Council of Nicaea did not ratify any canonical books. Oh, oh it didn't? Oh. I thought it, like, rejected some books. Uh, at least in the Nicaea, the, the Creed of Nicaea, or the Council, the Creed of Nicaea or the Nicene Creed made a statement about the deity of Jesus. It actually didn't make a statement, at least in the portion that, we, there might be in the minutes. So what they did do is they, they would have meetings and they would have minutes. So they might have talked about the canon in the minutes of that meeting, but they didn't do it in what they officially published as our creed. So that, that they did not publish as a creed any books of the Bible. So who, like who, who then brought together, maybe it was God, I guess, but yeah, yeah, yeah. who brought together the canon? Yeah, good question. The New Testament canon. The yeah, good question. I like the Scrolls of Thomas or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a Gospel of Thomas, so-called. Yes. Right, right, right. Yeah, great, great transition here. So yes. Um, there, so the New Testament, was, in, in the same way as the Old Testament, was throughout time gradually created, right? I mean, John wrote at a certain time in history, probably later than any of the other uh, writers of the New Testament. There's a bunch of letters that were written. So as they get written, they were gradually recognized as scripture by different churches. So what we have is we have lists from what different churches or different preachers, different Bible teachers used as a New Testament because we see which books they quoted, which books they referred to. That's a bit of a slippery slope, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Just because they referred to it doesn't mean that it's scripture. Just because they didn't refer to it doesn't mean it wasn't scripture. How often do I quote Philemon in my sermons? I love Philemon, but it's only one chapter. So anyway, that's, that's its own thing. But there was, there, so there were times, really, the first time that the New Testament was formally recognized was, was actually quite, quite late in terms of when people said these books are the books that are in the Bible. The way that it happened, did anybody here go to UMass? Boston. Boston, okay. Have you guys ever seen when, it, it, so the, okay, I'll, first I'll say something and then I'll make an illustration after that. It wasn't so much people deciding which books of the Bible are included in the Bible. That, that wasn't really what happened, like, we should decide. That wasn't really what happened. What happened was, gradually, people recognized that these books were in the Bible. So it wasn't so much deciding as recognizing, oh, we're all using these and these are scripture, is what it was. Mm -hmm. Similar to, here's my illustration, at UMass, there would be, like, chains that would, like, obstruct certain pathways, but students really wanted to go there anyway. And so they would just walk over the chain and then walk through the grass. And eventually, at the end of the semester, there would be this like borderline paved road because all these students have kicked the grass for a whole semester. And then eventually, UMass would put like a higher chain and people would like take, like go like 
torso height over this thing, and they would still do it. They'd put grass and it would just never grow. So eventually they took the chains out and paved the road. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Okay, so really similar to how the New Testament was established. It was like, okay, we're all using this stuff because this is what God has said. It wasn't so much, we're going to decide to put a pathway here. And in fact, the, why at the Council of Nicaea did they not so much like go to town about the canon of scripture? It was because they actually had more important things to do. What they had to do was argue for the deity of Jesus. This guy is God. The first 500 years are really the church working that out. And so go figure, the canon is a little more loosey-goosey for them. And that's because they, they have their priorities, I think, right. Now, I say that I would have liked them to give us a list. That would have been nice, you know, but... Um, I don't think we yeah. needed that because everybody's using these books anyway. If there would be books that would surface that were really popular, but then they would die out because people were like, look, that wasn't scripture anyway. It was kind of like a John Piper book. We love John Piper, but then he's going to die, and we're not going to listen to John Piper after that because he's dead, and we're going to keep reading the Bible. Yeah, it was that kind of a thing. So that's really how it happened. It was more recognized than decided. We do have a list from Athanasius from three... I, I have a note here. We're going to talk more about that. But th that's, I think, a good way to set up the stage. Does that, does that at least that perspective, did that setup make sense to well, you guys? Clarify, I totally had a misunderstanding of it. Sure, yeah. And it's a common misunderstanding, Gary. You're not the only I one. I thought the books were picked. Yeah, right, we're right. Now, yeah, I thought they made, like, a list. And, like, and eventually they were put in lists once people started really talking about it. But that was more or less after the Council of, Council of Chalcedon when they decided, oh, not decided, when they explained it was God who came down and died for our sins. I mean, that's the gospel, right? So, I mean, yeah, we got to figure that out in 450. We'll figure out canon in a second. It, you know what I mean? I think is kind of what, what they did. But yes, common misconception is that they had a meeting and just decided and everybody used it from there. That is not the case. There's a really popular misconception out there. It is, it's totally not true. It's just totally not true. Yeah, so thanks for bringing that up, Gary. It's a great, great point. So, how did the development work out? Well, in the Old Testament, the, the canon was never really disputed until Esther, really. And the reason for that was because Esther was the last, or nearly the last, Old Testament book to be written. Why was Esther disputed, though? Why is that? Well, frankly, I think the reason for it is because it was written last, and therefore it was the slowest to be recognized. And then as people started quoting the Old Testament, they realized, hey, why haven't you quoted Esther before? Hey, why isn't Esther in your canon that you've listed? Well, they hadn't gotten it yet, or they hadn't been used to using it yet, or they were using it and it wasn't in their official list yet, stuff like that. Because we know, if you look at the historical books of the Old Testament, why is Esther last? It's the last one. It's the last historical book. And so I think it makes actually quite a bit of sense that that would be the last one to be formally recognized. And now it is formally recognized without question by, well, the Jewish people of Jesus' day certainly had Esther in their Bibles, and they still to this day have it in the Hebrew Old Testament. So that that was really the only like question that people but isn't had. isn't there something weird about Esther where it doesn't mention God or something? It's true that Esther doesn't mention God, so it's a peculiar book of the Bible. And yet, if you want to... If you're looking for someone to defend why it should be in the Bible or something, mm -hmm. not only the fact that it, the, the Jews recognized it as so, but Esther really prepares people well for the intertestamental period where God is not going to prophesy for about 400 years. 
you know, and, and showing, hey, look, God isn't once mentioned in this book. And it's true. Esther does not once mention God. But Esther is certainly a story about God's faithfulness to a persecuted yeah. people mm-hmm. in a quiet time, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, so I actually think it's quite intentional. <laughs> not just I think. I mean, God put it there, right? right? Like, this is a really intentional move on God's part. Hey, even in a quiet time, this is going to be how I work in my people. You know. So Esther is the last book before the prophets? Esther is going to be the last book. Ooh, the order of the books. Job might be right beforehand. I forget the order off the top of my head. But as far as historical books go, it's yeah, it, it is the last and one. And then after that comes prophets. Yes, yes. Or wisdom, depending on how you want to define okay. what comes next. But yes, the, the rest of the Old Testament comes. And those are each written by the people that they're named after the prophets. Probably. Probably. Sometimes, actually, we, we don't have a name for uh, a, a book. or So Lamentations, for example, is a book that is usually attributed to Jeremiah. It makes a lot of sense to be attributed to Jeremiah. The tradition lumps Lamentations in with Jeremiah. It's consistent with what Jeremiah said. But there's no explicit author in Lamentations. But even that, that's the case. And so we're going to find people really struggled, not with the Old Testament, funny enough, but with the New Testament, when there was a authorial dispute about, okay, which James wrote the New Testament, the New Testament book. That became like, that made people like question it. It was being used already, widely used, right? But people are like, wait, if, if we don't know the author, is that okay? Because there are a lot of James back then. There were a lot of James. Yeah, there were a lot of a lot of names. That's absolutely correct. Yes. So, how do I say it? So, so they had hesitation over not knowing who the author is. Well, honestly... For God to have spoken the scripture, right? for God to have said it, do we need to know the human author? That's a question that I have for us. Do we need to know the human author if we have a doctrine of the inspiration of scripture? Well, not really, but you need to know that the that it's authentically God's right, word. Right, right, right. Exactly well said, yes. Oh, you don't okay. need to know necessarily, did Paul write Hebrews? And the answer to that is we don't know. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Sorry to oh, we don't? That. I thought it was Paul. It doesn't have an explicit author. So some people say, well, maybe it was Paul. But we don't, yeah, we don't have an explicit author for the book of Hebrews. So, and that made people hesitant to, uh, as, as people were receiving it and using it as scripture, people had questions. Wait, okay, we're using this book as scripture. Because Why are we doing that if there's no identified human author. What ended up happening, 367 was Athanasius. That's our first New Testament list, 367. Um, Is it just because the content of the book fits so well with the can- the rest of Scripture? So that's a huge that part it of it, yes. Use, it if if books are completely consistent with the New yeah. Testament, then eventually that is what compelled people to say, look, we recognize that this book has been used appropriately by the church by this point. Yes. But again, it wasn't so much, should we use it? Hold on, should we use it? Should we use it? Okay, let him in. Oh, he's in. We're using Hebrew. Hebrews well, is happening. Well, they're those weird Gospels of Thomas. Those were not nearly as widely used, though. And, I mean, frankly, there's a quote in there that says, like, Peter's like, it's like a super sexist line. Like, uh, in that book, which is not real, uh, right? Uh, Jesus is well, like, is in order real, to be right? saved, women have to become men. It's like... Oh my goodness. Yeah, right. Thanks so, for telling us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's not in the Bible, right? So rightly so, we've ostracized that really easily. Right, and it never received widespread 
use at all. All of the New Testament books did, some of them later than others, in particular 2 Peter, because there were so many forgeries by Peter, Pe people wrote a lot of fake letters. Um, and Peter, Paul also had the same issue you see in Thessalonians. He's like, I'm writing this with a big signature. This is from me, not anybody else. There were forgeries. So that also contributed to people's resistance to just immediately accepting these books, you know? Yeah. But then, after the dust settled, all of those New Testament books were widely circulated. Long story short. That had a consistent message in the word mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from God. Not, not to go off track. If, yeah, let's if, do it. If we are, but um, the, the, if, if, like, Paul wrote one letter or two letters, however many letters he wrote, isn't it, what about in his lifetime? Wouldn't you expect that he would have written, like, 50 letters or more letters? Mm -hmm. So, like, that's a great why, question. Because yeah. there's stuff just... Yeah, why are, why are there so few? Yeah, right? I mean, the Old Testament is way bigger than the New Testament. Why are there so few? Yeah, that's a fair question. And Paul was a prolific writer. Probably, yeah, as a, as a Jewish scholar, yes. So, honestly, a lot of us would wish that the early church wrote more. A lot of us wish that. Um, something we're going to talk about uh, in a couple weeks is the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. We're not quite talking about that yet, but long story short, we believe, look, Scripture's all we need. If we have what we have, this is all we need, right? But at the same, so what we just see in general is the early church was mostly focused on evangelism at the time. They weren't so much writing books. They just didn't do as much of that as we do nowadays. Because they had to. That's, if they didn't focus so hard on that, we wouldn't even have it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is a huge part of why Christianity blew up and why we today are saved what? Christian people who love Jesus because people spent time evangelizing. And we see Paul's life. I mean, he is traveling and traveling and traveling. He's taking like multi-week travels on ships. They're being shipwrecked, loses everything. If he was writing a letter, well, he lost it then. I mean, good luck. <laughs> Gotta go swimming, bro. You know what I mean? Like, so, I think you shipwrecked more than once, too. Absolutely yeah, more than once. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that, in short, I th why did they not write more? Because they didn't need to write more. But also, beyond the sufficiency of Scripture, they had evangelism to do, is, is honestly a lot of what was going on there. Great questions, though. How are we doing? What did they write on? Like animal skins or something? Scrolls, probably. Is that papyrus? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because okay. we were talking, we said market list. I, I don't was know. Like, I actually, don't know they wouldn't exact... have wasted paper. So they, they, in the, the Old Testament passages were written on scrolls. I only know that because Jesus pulls oh, yeah. out a scroll in the New Testament. But I, yeah. off the top of my head, I don't know what material they wrote on. That's a that's a good question. I can. I, I... I know there was like a scripture exhibit somewhere yeah 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 I, where you got to see the original sure 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 so actually this is going to kick in uh pretty much right now so as we you, you mentioned the original scripture the original manuscripts we do need to take a note of the apocrypha has anyone heard of the apocrypha before i've heard that word yeah the apocrypha so it's not in protestant bibles it's in catholic bibles and eastern orthodox bibles but it's not in Protestant Bibles, what the Apocrypha is, and you said original scripture, so this made me think of this, the Apocrypha is a number of books that are Jewish books, but that the Hebrews themselves did not include in their canon, but they were books that like recorded some history, basically, that's a, a summary of what the Apocrypha does. 
they included history of the Jewish people. So the Maccabees books are a history of what happened with the Jews in that um, the period between the Old and New Testament. So that's what when the books were written is between, and they're considered Jewish books. Um, and I'm going to address what you said about the original languages in just a second. Um, so they, they were never accepted by the Jews as canon. Does that make sense? They were just accepted as history books. Yeah, they were, they were used as history books. That's exactly correct. That's, exact, that's a great way to say it. So, but why was the Apocrypha so influential? Why is it ended up in our, uh, in some people's Bibles, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox today? What is with that? So this is a controversy that was only met at a head at the time of the Reformation because Martin Luther was saying, hey, purgatory is not right. And the Catholic Church basically responded, yeah, well, it's in 2 Maccabees. And Luther said, yeah, but that's not the Bible. And so that's how really this controversy oh. sparked into it. Now, how did the Apocrypha get to such a place of influence? That's because during the time of Alexander the Great, I'm not going to talk a ton about history right now, but the Apocrypha was included in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Old Testament was written so that people who spoke Greek could read the Old Testament. Very nice. We have English Bibles. We want, we want translations, right? But why was it included in the Greek translation of the Old Testament? Because those people wanted to record more of their history. It wasn't because they thought it was in the Bible. Nobody thinks the Jews were putting that in their Bible because they thought it was canonical. Nobody thinks God. that the Hebrews thought that. Right. Nobody thinks that the Hebrews thought that. But Christians, kind of... in hindsight, have had started to use those books that way, and that's why people started, some people started to use it in that way. But other people said, hey, wait, that was never the intention. What are we doing? So that became a controversy that really met ahead, and I'll talk more about that in just a moment. Okay. I'll keep going and we'll see if I if I iron out some kinks here. Okay, so, but it was never so it was never considered canon by the he, by the Hebrews. So there are two views on the apocrypha in the early church. One is Jerome. Jerome said, "Hey, this stuff is edifying. So this goes back to Troy and it goes back to um, even Ecclesiastes. Like beware of anything additional." Jerome said, "Look, the apocrypha is edifying, but it's not inspired canon." The Apocrypha is edifying, but it's not inspired canon. Augustine, though, you might have heard of Augustine before, really influential guy, probably the most influential Christian that didn't write a Bible book. Augustine said, it's fully inspired canon. Oh, shoot. Okay. Why does Augustine think that? So this came to a head when Jerome translated the Latin um, version of the Bible called the Vulgate. And what he did is he... Uh, Jerome did not actually include the Apocrypha in his Bible. Now, you might know that the Latin Vulgate does have the Apocrypha. Why is that? Isn't it Jerome's Vulgate? It is Jerome's Vulgate, but not the version with the Apocrypha. Jerome did not put the Apocrypha in there. They added it after from a previous Latin translation that Jerome thought was a little bit crummy, but they edited it and then put the Apocrypha in there and called it Jerome's. But Jerome would have been really sad about that. Jerome did not believe the Apocrypha was canon. Augustine urged Jerome, hey, bro, you got to put the Apocrypha in there. And Jerome goes, why? And this is what Augustine said. I don't know. This is not actually a reply to Jerome personally. This is a quote from one of Augustine's works. I'm actually not going to quote it. I'm, I'm just going to summarize it. He says, hey, the apostles quoted the Septuagint. Therefore, 
Everything in the Septuagint is inspired, both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Apocrypha. Do you see what Augustine did there? Hey, if they quote the Septuagint, the Greek translation, it must be inspired because they're inspired. That's an assumption, isn't it? So this goes back to our... But the apostles did not quote the Apocrypha. They quoted the Old Testament. They did. They actually oftentimes did quote the Apocrypha, actually. Mm -hmm. But, so I know this because I, I, I prepared the sermon for this morning. Matthew had access to that Septuagint, the Greek translation of okay. the Old Testament. There are moments where Matthew edits it. We have documents of what the Septuagint was. So we see where Matthew differs from the modern Bible of his day that Augustine claimed was inspired. Matthew edits it in certain places to make the more precise point that the Hebrew is making. Okay. Okay. So there are places where the Bible authors differ from the Septuagint. So they, they don't quote it exactly the way that... Because the Septuagint wasn't necessarily from the Jewish culture. It was from the... It was actually from the Greek Jewish culture, culture but it was... It was Funded by the Greeks, and it was done by Hebrews, okay. is what it was. So it was done by Jewish people. Oh. Now, there was a lot of legend, though, around the Greek uh, translation of the New Testament. The Septuagint, people, people made claims like, we used 70 scholars. It's called the Septuagint because sept, seven. Yeah. It's called Alexis. Hi, Rachel. Oh, my goodness. I don't have a chair. Yes, I do. It's right here. No, no, no. We have a chair here. This is perfect. My, I'm sorry about my belt being there. Um... I'll stand here. Thank this you. is perfect. Welcome, welcome. Um, my ADHD is kind of killing me right now. What were we just talking about? I won't distract your ADHD. No, that's the, the, this is really important. The Septuagint. The Septuagint. Yeah, yeah. Um, being funded by the Greeks. By yes, 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 yes. So there was legend. There was legend. This is this is what we were talking about. Sorry. Thank you, everybody, for your patience here. So they they made, there were like rumors that like oh there were seventy Jewish scholars who went into a room individually like different seventy different rooms uh -huh. right. You're, you're, I'll just tell you. And they came out, and their translations were identical. All 70 of them. Whoa, this is inspired by God. Greek totally. Absolutely. So in hindsight, now we know more about it. It actually took many, many years to translate the Greek New Testament, the Old, the Old Testament into Greek. Who knew? It takes a while. I mean, who here has even read the whole Bible in right. a year? That's a hard task. Translating the Bible is a hard task. It's not just... Anyway, so no, that didn't happen. We actually know from history that literally didn't happen. All of those myths have been debunked. But as you read the early church, you hear people like Cyril of Jerusalem right before the Creed of Nicaea saying things like, the inspired Septuagint with those inspired 70, you know? So they're like really influenced by these rumors, right? And so this brings us back to our doctrine of the inspiration of scripture, doesn't it? In the original languages, God said it, right? Now, what we have is good, faithful translations, right? Oh. There are going to be moments where we read something and we see, oh, wait, hold on. The, the Greek of the New Testament is saying this. I had this misconception about what the English was saying. We defer to the original, though, don't we? Why do we do that? Because that's exactly what God said. You know what I'm saying when I, when I say that? Mm -hmm. Now, we should... English Bibles are awesome. I'm taking Greek and Hebrew in seminary. As I translate, I'm like, yeah, they got it right. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say everybody needs to learn Greek and Hebrew because English is inspired. That's what I'm saying. But if we're going to make a precise doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, we have to say, hey, that's true about the originals. You know? So, but what does Augustine do? He says, if you quote it, it must be Scripture. It must be. The whole thing, including the appendix. 
oh shoot, man, that's, that's an assumption. You know what I'm saying? So, for, now Augustine ends up becoming, for better or worse, probably the most influential Christian on the planet. And so, people hold on to his doctrine of inspiration of the LXX. The LXX is Roman numerals for 70, so I, I meant to say Septuagint, but... So if you ever see in a book LXX, all caps, that's talking about something related to Christianity, that's talking about the Septuagint, LXX. So that was the first point. Hey, the apostles quoted it, therefore the whole thing, including the appendix that the Jews themselves never thought was inspired, the whole thing must be inspired. That's his first point. His second point, and both of these become super influential in the Catholic Church. He says, Augustine says, if a church with more authority does or doesn't use a book, the lesser authority churches should submit to the authority of the more authoritative church. Um. Okay, so now you're hearing, you're starting to hear, this is sounding a little more Catholic, right? Who has the most authority? The Pope in Rome, the Roman church, right? So that's how Catholicism would migrate. But this is important for us because this is what Augustine responds to Jerome with. Hey, the apostles quoted it. So the whole thing must be scripture, and influential churches use it. So we must use it. It must be scripture because influential churches use it. Hold on, Augustine. What determines if a book is in the canon? Is it the church? Are we deciding? We just we all just realize that this table. Nobody decided which books of the Bible. God decided. It happened, and we recognized it. The church doesn't have the authority to say, God, you said that. No, God, you didn't say that. We can't correct God. We can't do that. We bow to God in reverence and say, you have said this, therefore we will obey. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that's, that becomes really influential in Catholicism, but those are, that's how, that's, that's some background. So for Augustine, authority comes from the church's approval, not from recognizing what God just straight up said, whereas in reality, it's just what God Set. So those are the two things. One, the apostles quoted them. Two, influential churches use them, therefore you should submit to those. Catholicism generally, I don't have time to go through all of this, but generally followed Augustine on this point. Um, something that muddies the water a little bit is sometimes in the church history, people are saying, hey, look, the Apocrypha is scripture, it's just not canon. It's like, oh, dude, that... Scripture is what canon is. That's just, oh boy, like our, the terms get a little bit muddied in the early church in particular. You can see a lot of that. Origin says, "Look, it's not in the Bible. It's just inspired." <sighs> no, no, that, that's not quite. That's not how we do it, bro. Yeah, so, or like the Hebrew Old Testament and Apocrypha are both canon, but the Hebrew Old Testament is both canon and useful for making doctrine, and the Apocrypha is canon and. Only edifying. It's like, well, that's what canon means. Is it, you know what I mean? So anyway, there was also some muddied terminology that made it more confusing back then. Nonetheless, that's what Augustine says. That's how the Catholic Church ended up following him and why they have the Apocrypha basically today. A little bit of a fun fact. The Catholic Church made a statement endorsed by the Pope just 50 years before they officially determined the Apocrypha was in the Bible, the Pope actually said, hey, the Apocrypha is not in the Bible. It's not canonical. It's only edifying. It's not actually useful for doctrine. And then 50 years later, that Pope's statement was condemned. Not specifically. Like, they didn't say, hey, our Pope said this. We're condemning him. They didn't want to condemn their own Pope. But they condemned Luther, who said exactly the same thing their Pope did 50 years before. Anyway, I'm just... Weird. That's all, that, that's all we have to say about that. Um... Okay, okay, okay. In the Reformation, we went back to the original 66 books. They reiterated Jerome's views, and 
I think they're reiterating what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12, beware anything beyond these. So, whew, okay, that was a lot. How, how are we doing right now? And the reason why they took out those books, like, specifically, is because of the purgatory? Is that that is the, so purgatory was the controversy that ultimately led to a decision by the Catholic Church. These do belong here. Is, because they were, why were they talking about purgatory? Pur yeah, so that is books. a good question. It's a little, so. It's kind of a spiritual matter. It, it, yeah, sure. So, Okay, how do, then this is a really good question. Okay, just because a, a book that records history says something that's false about spirituality doesn't mean we should listen to that book that says that false thing about spirituality. Yeah, and that, the whole purgatory thing was, the, was why they were doing the purgatory indulgences. Is what, yes, right? yes. So, like so the there thing. was a lot... Now, it, to be fair to modern Catholicism, modern Catholicism is a lot better and more ethical than yeah. it was in that time during the Middle Ages. That was a really corrupt time of the papacy. And they honestly admitted that, and after the Luther thing where Protestant Reformation was kicking in, they were like, look, we need to reform. We really are not behaving in a godly way. A lot of our priests are sleeping around. They, they did a lot of reforming, and that is a really good thing that the Catholic Church did. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to be, I don't just want to like poo poo on the Catholic Church. I do believe that if they have a real trust in Jesus, there are real brothers and sisters. Definitely. But yes, the controversy between Luther and a guy named Eck was there, there was a debate about purgatory, and Eck said, well, hold on, this is in 2 Maccabees. Luther said, well, that's not in the Bible. You know what Eck responded with? Augustine quotes it. Oh, okay. Whoa! Augustine? But this okay. is why Augustine thought about it. Who cares what Augustine thinks? Totally, yeah. So, amen. And that's how basically Luther responded. Yeah. Augustine's not scripture. The church doesn't determine how this goes. And that's really... The Reformation was not even so much about purgatory. The Reformation was about the authority of the church is really what the Reformation was yeah. about, ultimately. Um, but purgatory was one way they were taking advantage of their authority, right? Because of indulgence. That was, yes. Now, the Catholic Church is no longer corrupt in that way and still affirms the doctrine of purgatory. It does. I don't. Neither does leadership at Mercy House. I'm not telling you that you have to conform to what I'm saying or something. But Protestants don't do that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> why is that? Because we believe that it's the Bible, the canon, the 66 books which are canonical are inspired. And frankly, we're, we're going to talk about the intermediate state. Is purgatory involved more? Paul says, look, it's better to depart and be with Christ. Definitely. So, okay, the moment he departs, he's with Christ. We're not in purgatory, like, burning up the rest of our, like, schniblets that needed a little more sanctifying after Jesus died already. You know what I mean? So, anyway, I think that is one reason to just reject the Apocrypha. Anyway, okay, that, yeah. that, that's not consistent. But even that aside, looking at why did they have the Apocrypha in the first place, I think can be helpful to recognize, okay, look, Eck is pointing to the church. Who's the church? Augustine. Why is it, what is Augustine doing? Well, you're a big church, so what you say goes. Well, hold on. Not what you say goes. What God inspires in his original languages goes, you know. These are great questions. How are we doing so far? We have three more minutes, and I think we're going to do it. Okay. Thank you. But first, I do want me, before I head into, there is a, one, one more little section I want to go, but do we have any questions about this at this point? Okay. 
Here we go. All right, we're coming in for a landing here. The inspiration of scripture. Okay, so we've been talking about this and kind of inevitably we've had to because you can't talk about one without the other. The inspiration of scripture. The canonical scriptures in the original manuscripts are God's words, right? So we've talked about that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so we have, so we've already talked a lot about that. Uh, every word that comes from God's mouth, scriptures, God breathed, Old Testament, New Testament. But okay, in what sense is it inspired? Is every detail inspired or is it just the general idea? I think you guys are going to know where I'm going. I'm going to say it's all inspired. But why? Why? Why do we say that? Well, let's look at Deuteronomy. A lot of people think it's just a general idea. That's, that's why we're talking about it. That's okay. absolutely right. Yes. Deuteronomy 8.3, it literally says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but lives by every word. By every word. So that's Old Testament. 2 Timothy 3.16. Here's New Testament. All scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. Not just the general thrust of it, whatever that is in your opinion. <laughs> the general metaphor. Yeah, 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 yeah. As if that's like rock theme. solid, right? Also, Matthew 5.18, we've quoted this before. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. An iota and dot were the smallest possible pen strokes that the Hebrew Bible had. So, even the pen strokes, even, even the periods and the commas, there weren't actually periods and commas in Hebrew, but you, you get the idea. Wait, but is it a problem that we add, like, chapter titles and stuff? And that's adding, a good question. So that's adding to the canon of scripture. I do think that in every Bible there's a preface, like, hey, this is a title for helping you navigate where to look for. <coughs> and people, There are people who think what you're saying, though, that, hey, we shouldn't be adding, so let's just let it be God's word straight up. I'm kind of okay either way, if you want my opinion about that. Um, but... Even, so this is, this is a bit, so sometimes people will say, look, why are you looking at even the most minutia? Like, why are you doing that? Well, even scripture itself interprets itself based on the smallest details. I have this in the notes. Galatians 3.16 says this. Now, the pro, this is Paul making an argument about Genesis 12. So he, Paul says this, Gen, Galatians 3.16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and your offspring, who is Christ. So Paul is making an entire argument based on, in English, the letter S. All scripture is God-breathed. Paul cares about even, God cares about even the S at the end of a word. Yeah, because changes it. Amen. Um, God's words are alive and active in the present. It's not stale and old. He speaks actively. Hebrews 4.12, you've heard this before. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is alive. This is God breathing his words. He is speaking to us. As we read these pages of scripture, God is talking to us. Man, that is sweet. Jesus is talking to us. That's conversation that we're having with him. That's really cool. So God's word is alive. It's living. It's active. That's our doctrine of inspiration. A couple of points just to kind of list off here before we go. There were various modes or means of receiving the scriptures. Now, sometimes, so Daniel 7 is an example of getting dreams or visions. We're also going to see that in the sermon passage for today, Matthew chapter 2. There's a lot of dreams that get, happen there. Sometimes you just hear God's voice audibly. Jeremiah 1.4 is an example. 
Jeremiah, I say to you. You know, so sometimes that's how it goes. Sometimes it's just simply observers of Jesus. If you've ever read the Gospel of John, you see John is like, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. See, he's just looking, right? He's just looking at him. Sometimes it's historical data collection. Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4. Oh, Theophilus, I wanted to put together, after having searched things diligently, an accurate account of what happened. You know, it's kind of a paraphrase of what Luke said. So Luke was just a historian. He is also a doctor, so he was kind of just a I-can-do-whatever-I-want kind of person, I guess. He was very successful. Anyhow, that's, that's, that's Luke's personality is not what this is about. But Luke collected historical data to put together his scripture. So it wasn't necessarily direct dictation. That, that, that is, I think, important because people are going to be like, oh yeah, really, did God just say to John? Well, not necessarily. He may have. In fact, Jeremiah is an example where uh, God says, hey, I'm going to dictate this to you. Write it down. Goes, okay. So, but that's not exclusively how the scriptures were written. Sometimes people will push back. How can you think it's inspired because... How could God have dictated it? Okay, number one, God could have dictated it. He could have. But actually, the texts don't say he dictated all of them. It just says a number of means. So anyway, that's what that is. And God had complete control over which scriptures lasted and got into. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you know, God's providence. You think about it, how many pieces of paper got destroyed? A lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. um, real quickly, the authority of scripture I'll just, I'll just say that because God has inspired the scriptures, they have authority, right? God himself is saying it to us. God is our highest authority. In a few weeks, we're going to be talking about attributes of God. Um, anyway, one of God's attributes is the attribute of authority. Because God is saying this, we should obey it. It's our highest authority because God is our highest authority. 1 Corinthians 14, 37, the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. God is saying it. Um, so that's the authority of scripture. The Catholic church thinks that it's the Catholic church that grants authority to the scriptures. Now you're probably seeing that by now, right? That's why we're talking about authority when we're talking about inspiration. What do, I don't want to tell you what you have to believe. What, what do I believe? What do you believe with me? If you want to believe with me, what I think God gives the scriptures authority. The Catholic church can recognize that or it cannot, but either way, God has said it. So it has authority. A note about um, what's called theological liberalism. Whew, what is liberalism? <laughs> That's like a spicy hot, hot, hot topic, right? Okay, I'm not going to talk. This is not a political statement. The reason I'm bringing this up is because liberalism, theological liberalism, is something that has actually really affected a lot of how especially like 50 years ago, it really decimated a lot of churches. It's not some kind of, uh, are you a politically conservative or liberal? That's not what I was talking about. But theological liberalism is trying to liberate Christianity of its like historical claims, of its of even the, the message that it itself makes. It kind of underpins it. So, okay, what what is theological liberalism marked by? Here's a few things. They deny the deity of Jesus. They deny the Trinity. Theological liberalism usually denies the authority of scripture and says, look, these people had some good ideas, but of course he's wrong about this stuff. This couldn't have happened. They'd usually deny miracles. They will deny actually that Jesus rose from the dead. They will deny even, as we talked about deity of Jesus, that God himself dwelt as a human. 
They will deny that Scripture records real history. So, okay, look, the historical account of Jesus' crucifixion, eh, look, it's more of a metaphor. God is lifted up, and you look to him, and he resurrects like a phoenix like you do. And so rise from the ashes of your bad graves and now come. Whoa, that's not the gospel. Jesus actually rose. You know, so that, anyway, so these are things that, these are kind of like characteristics of theological liberalism. Um, they'll also deny, especially, that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Universalism is usually associated with that. Universalism, that's a term. Uh, say, everybody gets saved. It doesn't matter if you reject Jesus. It doesn't matter, whatever. They'll usually also deny that there's punishment for sin. Um, there, there will also be, I know I'm listing these off really quick. We're a little over time, and I'll let you all ask questions in just a second. This is my last point. They usually will say that salvation is an exclusively earthly experience. So an example is like an extreme form of liberation theology. Liberation theology is, are you oppressed? Well, the gospel says that you won't be oppressed. And so let's rise from this oppression. Look, Christianity is not pro-oppression. Christians need to do work to mitigate oppression. Yes and amen. But the gospel says way more than our earthly oppression. It's not just that our earthly experience is our salvation, although we do experience salvation on earth, but knowing God is what it is to be saved. It's not just, I'm coming out from poverty. So anyway, that's a quick little summary of theological liberalism. I mention that because it'll come up a lot, and they deny the authority of scripture usually. So that's what we got. Thanks for sticking with me, guys. This was a pretty, like, heady one. I think most of them, like, we're not going to talk about, like, why the Apocrypha? You know, we'll mostly be talking about Bible topics and talking about doctrine like that, but I thought that was especially helpful or important. I guess you'll be the judge if it was helpful. But I thought that was important to do that. So, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Does anybody have any questions? And if not, does anybody, after questions, want to pray? I can't pray, I already prayed, so somebody else has to pray. Is there not a prayer group down there right now? There is a prayer group. I just felt that it would make sense to like... I'll I'll, 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 I'll stop the recording, actually. I I don't want to have to... uh, Yeah, like close our, our time together, yeah.